Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. We want to go deep. Is that all right? Okay, very good. Uh, what is the central pillar of the gospel? If I were to ask you this question, how would you answer it? It's centered in one person, really. I'm hearing a few answers that all are relating to one person. The central pillar of the gospel is really Christ, Jesus, and his identity. His identity particularly uh, as revealed in the scripture. And the scripture reveals to us that he is both the son of God and the son of man. In that order, right? I want to spend some time looking at the importance of that. You see, uh, something that is very, very plain and very, very foundational is missed by a lot of people when it comes to this foundation. That the identity of Christ as the Son of God and as the Son of Man is the foundation of the gospel. And actually, all the gospels reveal this fact very, very plainly and clearly in their introduction, as we shall see in a minute. For example, if we go to the gospel of Matthew, let's go there quickly. Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 1, you will notice this is not a very popular chapter for reading. Isn't that right? What people do with Matthew chapter 1 is generally they skip it. Have you ever skipped it? Why? Because it's a list of names. Isn't that right? It tells us there in the beginning, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to give us a detailed list and to some people a boring detailed list of the genealogy of Christ. Now something is very significant why Matthew is doing this that we don't need to miss. What Matthew is doing is establishing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was indeed the son of man. Isn't that right? Now it might be hard for us, some names are hard to pronounce and so on, but that was very important for Hebrews, the Hebrew mindset. Not only that, but that's important for us because the humanity of the son of God is everything to us, we are told. And so Matthew goes to great lengths to establish that this man was indeed a human being. He gives us his human genealogy. The Gospel of Luke does the same thing. If you go to the Gospel of Luke and you go to chapter 3 there, you will find a very similar situation. And the reason is Christ is the central pillar and the identity of Christ as both son of man and son of God is that pillar. And that's what the gospel writers are beginning with. They're building on the foundation. In Luke chapter 3, again, you find towards the end of that chapter, another long list. And Luke this time traces the genealogy of Christ through the line of Mary. And he traces it back all the way to Adam to show very clearly that Christ came from the line of Adam. He is a real human being. He goes all the way to Adam because, of course, Luke is writing to his friend, uh, and Luke was a, a Gentile. He was not a Hebrew. He was a Gentile, and so he's emphasizing that Christ is a human being for the whole human race. Matthew, on the other hand, makes sure that he stresses that Christ is of the seed of David, of the seed of Abraham, because he's writing primarily to to Jews, and Abraham and David are very important figures to Jews. So we here we have a dual witness from Matthew and Luke, that Christ is indeed the son of man. They give us his human genealogy. Now, before he became the son of man, Christ was the son of, of God. Now, the interesting thing is, the other two gospel writers give us his divine genealogy, 
also in the very beginning of those Gospels. Let's have a look. Mark chapter 1. And you will have a fourfold witness of the identity of Christ. Mark chapter 1. Again, this verse is, is many times, it's very short, and so it's not pondered perhaps very much. But notice what Mark 1 and verse 1 tells us. Very, very simple. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of, of God. What's Mark doing? He's giving us his divine genealogy. It's not very long because he is the Son of God. But we miss the point of what he has done. He's doing the same thing that Matthew has done and Luke, but he's, he's dealing with the divine part. Not only Mark, but John does that. He's the second witness in this divine genealogy. Let's have a look at that. John chapter 1. I think we all know these, these verses. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. And it tells us there, In the beginning was the Word, that's Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's his divine genealogy, isn't that right? He was right there in the beginning. He was the Son of God. So we have a fourfold witness here in the Gospels, Son of Man and Son of God. I think that's really neat, don't you? It's amazing. The whole, then they begin to tell the Gospel story of this divine human Savior. And that's why we're also told that the divinity of Christ is everything to us as a people. It's our assurance of salvation, the humanity and the divinity of Christ. And so today we want to look a little bit at this sonship, especially I want to focus on the sonship of Christ to the Father, His divine line, His divine genealogy, and see what we can gain from that, and what it means to us practically in our Christian walk. This is really what the purpose of the Gospel is, you know, aside from theories and ideas, if we cannot benefit from them practically in our Christian walk, there remain only that, theories and ideas. That doesn't really help anyone, and Paul actually tells us that knowledge puffeth up, doesn't it? So our purpose is not just to get more information. Our purpose is to see how we can practically make use of that information in our Christian walk. That's our purpose today. And that's what I want to do. So I'll, I want us to read this, uh, this statement together. This is from the periodical, the Youth's Instructor of February 11. Now the Youth's Instructor was a periodical aimed particularly at who? Youth, isn't that right? Young men and young ladies, I like reading youth instructor articles because it's like Sister White writes there a little simpler and clearer for the young people. But it actually reveals some very beautiful, deep truths for those who are not uh, categorized maybe in their own mind as youth. But it's for all of us, really. Anyway, we'll read it together, see what it says. Dear young friends, are you prepared to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? to say, as did Nathanael, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. You would do well to contemplate this sacred and eternal truth most earnestly and prayerfully, until your whole being becomes imbued with its greatness. That's the truth that Nathanael confessed. We are too apt to view truth as, truth as a whole and see only the surface. When, if we would ponder them, pray over them, and put to the stretch every mental power, we might understand. For God would give us wisdom as he did to Daniel. Our spiritual senses would be quickened to understand the deep 
things of God. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't you like to understand the deep things of God? Here's a promise given, and here's instruction how we can do that as we meditate, as we ponder, as we prayerfully think, especially on particularly this point that we're talking about here. This, as we meditate on this truth, we can gain insight and understand some of the deep things of, of God. Uh, that's what I like to find out about, deep things. And the fact that we're all here today tells me that we all want to know more. We want to grow more in our experience with God and get to know about these deep things. And you know what the beautiful thing is, as it says here, as we read in the scriptures, God gives us His Spirit to reveal those very things. But the, uh, the Spirit does not reveal them except to those who truly and earnestly desire them and seek after them. Isn't that what Jesus said? Seek and you will... He didn't say you'll find accidentally, did he? Or you'll stumble along, along you know, by, just by chance. No, seek, and you will find. That's what we're trying to do. And this is what, by God's grace, we will uh, find. Because as we see and as we understand deeper about Christ and the position that he holds, it will actually enhance our understanding of God's love and the plan of salvation. And in doing so, we will be changed thereby. That's the purpose of truth, really, and ultimately. So let's uh, ask a question. I know this has been dealt with already a little bit. I want us to ponder this a little. Special, especially, this is a common question that I have found uh, among people who believe the truth about God, about the Father and the Son. And the question is this. Why did God have a son? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And why did God only have one son? You ever wondered about that? I've had this discussion a lot with a lot of people over the years. We all get in circles after church or after lunch, and we just sit and discuss, and, and some very interesting ideas come up. And uh, there is a very common answer that is usually given. Uh, in, in my experience, anyway, I found that there's a very common answer. Sooner or later, someone, or someone's will come to this answer. And if I were to ask you this question, what would your answer be? Why? What is the purpose? What is the reason that God had a son? What would you say? He's perfect? Okay. That's good. It doesn't give us really a reason as such. That's a very good answer, though. You didn't need any more? Okay. To save mankind, to be an example. Of submission, yes, we'll come to that. It's very good. Someone mentioned there a point that's very common. That's the point that I was... Uh, so you can have a companion. Okay, very good. To save mankind is something that is very common. And the, the answer usually goes along the lines of, well, God in His wisdom and in His foreknowledge foresaw that man would fall and that there would be a need to save man. And in order to save man, He would have needed a sacrifice... And so God decided in his wisdom to have a son to save man. That's something very loving. Now that's very, very true and very good as far as we understand. But we have to remember something. God says in his word, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. What might seem good, reasonable, and logical to us is not necessarily the case with, with God. Isn't that right? Now, nowhere in the scripture has God spelled out plainly in a verse and told us why he had a 
son is something we have to dig a little deeper into. And one of those places that reveals to us this fact is uh, Proverbs chapter 8. Everybody's familiar with Proverbs chapter 8. We're not going to go there because that's been dealt with already throughout this uh, camp. But Proverbs chapter 8 tells us about the birth of of Christ. And under which title is Christ speaking in Proverbs 8? Does anyone remember? Wisdom. Now there's something significant about that. In that the birth of Christ is actually a manifestation of the wisdom of God. That's why he is spoken of under that title in that chapter. It wasn't an accident. Actually, it wasn't an accident that God selected the wisest man that ever lived outside of Christ to write about this important event. That wasn't a chance either. King Solomon, he was recording that information. And so Proverbs 8 tells us that Christ was brought forth. He's the wisdom of God. And I want us to look at this quote in light of that as well. This is from Selected Messages, Book 1. And it says, uh, before it says, it actually quotes Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 27. That's speaking about the birth of Christ from the Father. And this is what it says, commenting on that. There are light and glory in the truth that Christ was one with the Father before the foundation of the world was laid. This is the light shining in a dark place, making it resplendent with divine original glory. This truth, infinitely mysterious in itself, explains other mysterious and otherwise unexplainable truths while it is enshrined in light, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. I want you to think about that for a minute, because there is a lot in that. This truth is mysterious, but it explains all other truths. That's a pillar truth. That's a foundation. You see, the Sonship of Christ is the cornerstone of the whole structure of truth. That's what we're told right here, isn't that right? There is light and glory in this truth. And we're told in the scriptures that a time is coming when in Isaiah tells us that God speaks to his people, he says, arise and shine. Why? Because your light is coming. What are they to do with this light? To share it. And then in Revelation 18, we're told about an angel that comes down from heaven. And what does he do? He lightens the whole earth with his glory. And right here we are told there are light and glory in the truth that Christ was with the Father before the foundation of the world was laid. You see a connection here? The message of a light the world with its glory has to be based on the cornerstone of all truth. That's the sonship of Christ. That's why we're trying to explore a little bit here. I'm not going to go to the details of trying to prove to you that Christ is indeed the Son of God. We've dealt with that already. I want to build on that a little more and just go a little deeper. Romans 11.33 gives us a little bit of an insight as to God's wisdom. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. I'm going to speed up here a little bit because time is moving fast. We're not moving as fast. Romans 11.33. We're trying to see if we can come to an answer. It says here, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So this is something we have to keep in mind whenever we discuss or seek to understand the deep things of God. 
There is a limitation on us, isn't that right? Because God is infinite. Because God's wisdom is so unsearchable, it's so vast, it is actually past finding out. Now some people might be discouraged by that and say, well, why bother? Some others might be encouraged. You know, if it's fast finding out, there's so much, let's start as soon as we can and, and learn and learn and learn and we'll continue in eternity. That's what this verse is bringing out, that God's wisdom is past finding out. So I want us to keep that in mind because that's really what's brought out here. And it says this truth is infinitely mysterious in itself. We will not fully and completely understand what it really means or the full reasons as to why and how God had a son. But we can understand somewhat. We can understand a little, we can have an insight. We can gain a little insight through the scriptures. Now, of course, the Bible tells us that Christ, one of the names and titles of Christ, and we read that before, in Corinthians, the scriptures refers to him as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's the connection we see there with Proverbs chapter 8. And the title of the wisdom of God of, for Christ is actually very, very important for us, as we shall see. We'll see the practical implications of that, and this is what... I don't want to miss out on, so that's why I want to move a little uh, faster. You see, the Bible tells us that the father delighted in his son when he had a son. He delighted in his son. He saw in him a reflection of his own perfection and beauty and holiness and the completeness of the character. He saw that, and in Proverbs 8 it says, Then I was by him as, as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight. delight. The father delighted in his son. He saw in his son, really, a living manifestation of his own wisdom. And that's why later on in the gospel, it tells us that the father loveth the son and has given him how much? All things. All things. Remember, we looked at that in our first night. All things were given to the son, not just material and physical. All things were given to the son. The father delighted in his son. And of course, the son recognized that he was the son of the father. And he responded accordingly. We see an example of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn over there. 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll see what the response of the son was. Here we see the father delighted. He gave everything to the son. This establishes for us the father is the source. Isn't that right? And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28 tells us the response of the son. Now the timing of this is after sin is finished. But I want us to draw a thought from this. Verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Who put all things under the Son? The Father. So it tells us here that Christ will be subject to the Father when all things are put down. Now that's not going to be something that happens for the first time in the future. It's actually a reflection of how things are even before sin. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever? And so this gives us an insight that the Son recognized that the Father is the source of all, and He was a loving Son. He was subject to His Father. Not because He was inferior. The Father gave Him how much? All things. But He recognized the fact that his father was the father. This submission was very, very important. It's actually a principle that God has put in place for us, as we shall see. You see, God had a very, very wonderful plan. 
God's plan was that he would create beings to inhabit this universe, this vast universe that we saw. And when he was contemplating uh, creating beings, he decided that he would give them a very, very important and very significant gift. You know what that gift is? He would make them free to choose, freedom of choice. They would be free moral agents. Uh, we don't really understand the importance of that gift. We see a little bit of an insight in the fact that in order to preserve this gift, God had to give up his son for us. You realize that? It all has to do with freedom of choice. Because if you ask yourself the question, how is God going to maintain a universe free of sin forever? That's what we're told, isn't that right? And yet still maintain freedom of choice. It won't be like people will be incapable of choosing sin. God had to come up with a plan to maintain man's or everyone's freedom of choice and at the same time permanently put away sin. And the only way that such a plan was possible was through the sun. It's really a genius plan if you really think about it, contemplate. How in the world is that possible? How can God with assurance say, iniquity shall not arise a second time? Will God deprive us of choice? No. Does that mean that someone potentially or possibly even theoretically can choose to sin? The potential and possibility is there. That will never be deprived. But God has come up with a genius plan to be able to confidently say, no one will ever choose that. Once we're finished with this plan, no one will ever choose that, and iniquity will never rise again. That is genius, pure genius. We won't spend too much time on that today, but uh, let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Before we get to the problem of sin, we had a, being, uh, sorry, we had a universe that was free of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in the, creating these free moral agents, God had to have a system whereby they could learn and be educated and grow more and more like Him. You see, God wanted His beings to learn wisdom, to be like Him. God did not create everyone and everything with a pre-loaded uh, program. They were to learn. Because in learning and development and growth is where character grows. And uh, just as a plant grows, everything grows. We see that example. And uh, there is a very important principle of education and learning. Before we read the text, uh, the principle of education and learning, think uh, all, all of you who are parents. How many parents we have here? You have children? Okay, most people have children. Now, a very important principle of education when it comes to children are three basic uh, steps of education. The first one is example. Anyone will tell you, children will learn first and foremost by? Example. You know what the second one is? It's also example. And the third one is also example. That is the most powerful thing that we can. Isn't that right, parents? Children will copy you a lot quicker than they will listen to you. You know, one time I made that mistake. I was out somewhere and, and uh, there were children there and, and I started doing something. I just started jumping on a piece of rusted metal for some reason. I were playing. Anyway, all of a sudden I see this group doing the same thing straight away and I jumped and said okay no no we, we don't want to do that because they might hurt themselves and they would laugh smiled and jumped all the harder <laughs> you know they saw me do it so they did I probably wouldn't enter into their mind example is very very powerful that's a principle that God built into us actually and in 2 Corinthians 3 we see that verse 18 tells us this principle of education 
It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed by beholding. That's the principle of education. And so the Father wanted his beings to behold something or someone that would teach them and thereby they would be changed. And here we see his wisdom in God having a son. You see, by beholding the son and by beholding how the son related to his father, everyone else would learn how they also could relate to God. We've discussed this. I don't want to go too much into detail. But notice what Colossians 2 tells us as well. Colossians chapter 2. How was everyone going to learn wisdom? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3. Speaking of Christ, it says here, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The library of wisdom of the universe is Christ. Not just on this earth, is it? He is the house, the storehouse of wisdom forever. And so God in his wisdom saw fit that he would put all his wisdom in his son. And his son would be a manifestation of his wisdom for everyone to learn. For a perfect, sinless universe. It wasn't ever God's intention for sin to enter. And uh, we'll see that in a minute, God willing. But that's important to keep in mind as well. Because looking to the Father... What, what's the father like? We discussed that a little bit. The father is a being who submits to who? No to no one. Isn't that right? He answers to who? No and he is dependent on? No one. no one. Isn't that right? He is supremely and completely independent in every sense of the word. He has supreme authority and supreme power. Now, if... Beings were to look to that, what would they become? Same thing. Isn't that right? Independent, submit to no one, answer to no one. Beings. You cannot run a very happy universe like that. And so this is why when you look at the Son of God, you see Christ is submissive to the Father. He inherited all things from him. And in looking at the Father through Christ, everyone would learn how they can relate in a universe to live harmoniously. And that's how it was for however long it was before sin entered into the world. And this is what we're told about that in Desire of Ages. It says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. From the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. So not just as a recent development. He was the image of God, the image of his greatness and majesty, the outshining of his glory. It was to manifest this glory that he came to our worlds. And that's why the Bible tells us, the scriptures reveal to us, that all things were created by him and for him. Why were they created for him? So he can bring all things to the Father. He's the way to bring all that. To link all that. He's the linking point between everything, everyone, and the Father. Now, there's a beautiful quote. We dealt with that already uh, in some presentations, already covered that. But I want us to look at it in a way that uh, 
maybe will help us understand it a little better. In Desire of Ages, we have this beautiful quote describing what we're talking about in beautiful language. I'll just read it here together quickly. It says, turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the whole universe. That's the principle of the law of life. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And, so, uh, and thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Now there's so much in that beautiful quote. Christ was this link for a perfect, happy universe, for the whole universe, and through him, this circuit of beneficence is complete. Who does the circuit start with? The Father. And where does it end? With the Father. But Christ is the one that completes this circuit. And here we see the wisdom and the wonderful majesty of our God. Now, I like illustrations because illustrations make things clearer for me. And I think for all of us. That's why God gave us two books, a book of words and a book of illustrations. That's the book of nature, isn't that right? Yes. So if we were to illustrate this, we see the Father and the Son. And the Father, of course, uh, tells us as we read in the quote, we'll just illustrate what we just read. All things Christ received from, from God, isn't that right? And through Him, the Bible says, all things were created, all things were made. And through the Son, all created beings received existence. They receive love and life, and they are in the circuit of beneficence. They receive fullness of blessing because God is a God who loves to bless His children. We're actually told that the sovereignty of God involves a blessing for His children. And, uh, of course, uh, the circuit uh, continues. As these beings recognize and understand that, they respond with, with praise with joyous service, and of course with? With love in return. And this love comes back through the Son to, to the Father. That's how the circuit of beneficence is complete. And we're actually told that this is the universal law of, of life. This is how a happy, harmonious universe functions. There's no sin in this picture at all. And as these beings recognize that all things come to them from God, there is a free choice made, not compulsion, but a free choice made of gratitude, to give gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving. This picture is actually the model for any successful relationship that God has created. If you were to look at the home in this context, you will find that it fits perfectly. The family was created in replica to this particular model that God gave us. We won't spend too much time on that today. But I want us to see that because this illustrates for us that the circuit is incomplete without Christ or the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God that connects all that together. And this is what Christ is for the whole universe. I want us to look at an example of this just to bring that out. 
You might have been familiar with this particular quote, but let's read it together and see what it says. The servant of the Lord here writes in the book Maranatha, it says, the Lord has given me a view of other worlds. So this is not earth, right? Other worlds, words, uh, wings were given me, and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green, and the birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were of all sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of who? Of Jesus. And their countenances beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. Isn't that interesting description? They bore the image of Jesus. Why does she say Jesus? Now this is, this is a world that has not fallen. Isn't that right? These are holy beings. They bore the image of Jesus. How they bore the image of Jesus is in the same way that we're told in 2 Corinthians 3. They were changed by beholding. And who are they beholding? Christ. And they're becoming more and more like Him. If we were to go back there and look at this uh, illustration. So they, as they look to God, they look to God through the Son and they become more and more like Christ. It's interesting. It doesn't say they bore the image of God. It says they bore the image of Jesus. But Jesus says, I and the Father are, are one, and he is in the express image of the Father's person. Actually, to become like God, you need to look to Christ. He is the wisdom of God manifested and revealed. And we see an example there very, very clearly. Of course, they were to become like God in character. That's only clearly revealed and seen in Christ. You see, God, our God is of such awful majesty and glory and holiness that God can be very easily misunderstood and read incorrectly. And Satan is using that to his advantage in this great controversy, isn't that right? The character of God has been misrepresented. That's why Christ has come to reveal the true character of God to us sinners so that we might understand what he is truly like. And this helps us see why God would have had a son. I want to look at the implications of that a little. Because God never intended or planned for sin to enter into the universe. And God never ever intended for his son to actually die. You know that? It was never God's plan for his son to die. It wasn't like something in the back of his mind. Son, I need you because one day we need to save some people who will sin. That wasn't the case at all. Did sin have to happen? Yes or no? Lucifer, when he sinned, could he have repented? We're told he, he could have repented. And had he done so, he would have saved not only himself, but the angels with him. But we're told that pride forbade him. What would have happened to the Son of God if Lucifer repented? Would he have had to die? Not at all. See, any scenario could have happened because there is free choice. And so that tells us very plainly, it was never God's intention for his son to die. And sadly, the worst case scenario is the one that happened. The worst possible case, and it could not have been any worse. You know why we know that? Because it could not be worse than the son of God dying. There was no worse scenario. So sadly, the worst option was taken and Lucifer stuck to his guns, so to speak, and God knew what it would cost him. That's why it was actually a struggle with God whether to let guilty man perish or to give his son to die. Why? Because God thought, I never ever wanted this to happen. His son was never ever intended to 
to die. But God loved us so much that he was willing to do that, which cost so much. You understand a little bit why it was a struggle with the Father. You also understand what it costs to give the Son. When we recognize that the entire universe was linked together through the Son, and now God was faced with a decision, in order to save this little world, He had to give that Son. You know, in giving us the Son, He was risking the whole circuit of beneficence. You realize that? That's the love that God has for us. Now, if you, if you dwell and think about that a little bit, it will help you appreciate, maybe, the weight that was on Christ's shoulders when He walked this earth. You know, it's no wonder He spent nights in prayer. Because if Christ failed, not only would this world have been lost, but the entire universe. You realize that? Now, some of you are thinking, how does that work? That's the weight that was on Christ's shoulders. Why would the entire universe have been lost? Because Satan would have stood up and said, see, I was right. And you just imagine the, the waves in the universe as that news traveled to all the universe. Wow, Lucifer was right. God was wrong. It's a very, very serious situation. You know, I'm so thankful we can only wonder about what could have happened in our minds. The reality is Christ has won. Praise the Lord. This possibility, what we're talking about, is only in the realm of what might have happened, but praise God, it didn't happen. Satan understood that. That's why he knew this is an all or none battle when he was battling with Christ. Now, I want us to look at the rebellion here briefly. This is our, the part that uh, hopefully gets a little bit closer to the practical aspect. When uh, Christ was still in heaven and when Lucifer was still in heaven and before the fall, we know that Christ was next in authority to God. He was next in authority to the great lawgiver. And next to him in authority was who? Was Lucifer. He was the third in line. And uh, he was the being, very likely the very first being that was ever created. He was the being that was created most uh, or closest to God, closest to reflect what God is like. As far as creation was concerned, God invested the most in Lucifer. And that's, again, something for us to consider and think about. Because you can imagine as Christ created Lucifer, because Christ actually was the one who made him. All things were made by him. Christ, in his wisdom and knowledge, knew that this being, very possibly one day, will use his freedom of choice against him. Isn't that right? And that every gift that he is investing him with will be adulterated and used against him. Now, if that was you or me, we might hold some back, wouldn't we? Well, I won't make him so powerful. I won't make him so wise. I won't make him so capable. But not so with God, isn't that right? It was like God wanted Lucifer to have no reason whatsoever for disaffection or dissatisfaction. And he gave him everything. He lavished him with every gift that he had and made him as close as possible to himself. And sadly, we know the sad story. But Lucifer had a particular problem in heaven. And his problem had to do with Christ. He was next in authority. I want to see clearly what he had a problem with, because this will help us appreciate the position that Christ holds. 
In this proposed volume one, uh, volume one, we're told the following. Satan and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. They were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son, Jesus, and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. They rebelled against the authority of the son. That's a key word here I want us to keep in mind. The sonship of Christ involved a position of authority by divine inheritance, since the Father is the great authority of the universe. His Son, of course, is invested with the same authority next to him. And Lucifer had a problem with the Son. He particularly had a problem with his authority. And since his authority was based on the fact that he is the Son, therefore Lucifer had a problem with his sonship. And that's what he chose to attack. This is exactly what we're told. So Lucifer is right there in this circuit of beneficence. He was the third in line or third in command. And uh, that's a good question to ask people who believe differently, by the way, which, which generates very interesting answers. But Lucifer was in this circuit of beneficence. He was the recipient of the blessings of God. And he chose to do away with the system of God. He wanted to reform the government of God. You see, Lucifer is trying to search into the deep things of God, into the wisdom of God, and the only way to look to that is through the Son. But he had a problem with the Son, and therefore he lost wisdom. He wanted to do away with the, with the Son. Notice what this is, uh, how this is revealed. Now, this is a very interesting quote. It says, in this day with God, page 128, angels were expelled from heaven because they would not work in harmony with God. They fell from their highest state because they wanted to be exalted. They had come to exalt themselves and they forgot that their beauty of person and of character came from the Lord Jesus. This fact, the fallen angels would obscure that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And they came to consider that they were not to consult Christ. One angel began the controversy and carried it on until there was rebellion in the heavenly courts. What is the one fact that they wanted to obscure? That he is the Son of God. Why? Because they were rebelling against his authority, and his authority is based on his sonship. And you know what the amazing thing is? All the people who talk about the great controversy and the issues in the great controversy almost never ever touch on this point. This is the heart of the great controversy. It's a question of authority. Remember when the devil tempted Christ in the wilderness? He said, if you will worship me, I will give you all these things. What was he really saying? If you will recognize my authority. It's a question of authority. The authority that Lucifer has assumed is illegitimate. He is seeking to establish it in illegitimate ways. The authority that Christ has is rightfully his by inheritance based on the sonship. Lucifer knows that. That's why he's fighting the truth of the Son of God. And that's why we understand the truth of the Son of God practically. It is empowering. Because the Bible tells us that he's not just the wisdom of God. But the Bible also tells us that he is made unto us wisdom. And all these things that the verse says. But not only is he wisdom, he is everything that he has from the Father, as we shall see uh, in a minute. And this battle, this issue in the great controversy is so clear 
It's, it's amazing how people miss it. Notice how the loyal angels responded to the defection and the attacks of Lucifer. It says, angels that were loyal and true sought to reconcile this mighty rebellious angel to the will of his creator. They clearly set forth that Jesus was the Son of God, existing with him before the angels were created, and that he had ever stood at the right hand of God, and his mild, loving authority had not heretofore been questioned, and that he had given no command, but that it was joy for the heavenly host to execute. Isn't that interesting? The loyal angels in the great controversy were defending the fact that Christ is the Son of God. That was the issue that was happening in heaven. And guess what? The same issue is happening today. And so when you stand in defense of the Son of God, you are standing on the same side as the loyal angels. And when you fight against the truth of the Son of God, you are standing on the same side of the rebellious angels. That's the great controversy. Why? Because it's a battle of authority. Will you recognize the authority of the Son, which is based on the fact that He's the Son, or will you rebel against the authority of the Son? You know if Christ is not the Son of God, His authority is illegitimate. Because all things are of the Father. He doesn't have anything of His own to come up with aside from the Father. No one does. Lucifer is the first one who pioneered this line of thinking. He sought to establish his own authority. You with me? You understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm having, getting some blank looks here. Are you all awake? Okay, just, just checking. And as I said, this issue is hardly ever addressed when people talk about the great controversy. You know, for Seventh-day Adventists, the great controversy is the theme we all like to talk about. Isn't that right? the great controversy theme, and we talk about the law of God, and that's all very good and well. The law of God is nothing other than the authority of God. It's a question of authority. Which law, which God will you worship? But we fail somehow along the way. We failed to recognize that the true issue is the authority of the Son, or the assumed authority of Lucifer. Lucifer was rebelling against the wisdom of God. He wanted to do away with the Son. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be an independent authority. That's why he says in Isaiah, as we were told, I will be like who? The Most High. You want to be like the Most High without the Son, you will always go wrong. No one can be like the Most High. The only one who is truly like Him is His Son. We can be like Him in character, but we can never be like Him in all the positions that He holds. We can never be the source of all things, can we? That's impossible. And so there are limitations on us. And we see the harmony when we look at Christ. Lucifer wanted God's power, but not his character. He wanted the power and authority, but not the wisdom, not the character. That's why he had a problem with the son. Because right there in a living representation was a refutation of what he wanted all along. Here's the son who was full of authority, but submissive to the father. So Lucifer wanted to do away with the son. Matthew 21 shows this controversy on earth. Just so we can see the parallels here. Uh, time is going. Okay, Matthew 21. Let's uh, turn to our Bibles quickly. 
Be quick at finding Bible books. Matthew 21, verse 23. Notice the same problem on earth. It says, Matthew 21, 23, And when he, this is Christ, was coming to the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? What did Christ do to cause this question to come up? He just finished cleansing the temple. So the first is, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing this? It was a question of authority. Satan was behind the Pharisees. And today the same thing, the same battle is going on. It's over authority. It's a very important question. And Jesus answered very wisely. How did Christ answer? Does anyone remember? He answered them with a question. You see, the Pharisees were not ready or willing to acknowledge the right answer. So Christ actually wanted to give them the right answers. He wanted to lead their minds in the right channel to answer their questions. He gave them an example of John the Baptist. He said, well, I'll ask you a question. If you can answer me, I'll answer you. John the Baptist, what authority did he have? Was he of God or of man? And so they huddled together and, and decided that the safest answer would be, I don't know. We don't know. If we say yes, we're stuck because yes means John was of God. John spoke of Christ. So our question is irrelevant when we say what authority they are. If we say no, the people will stone us because they all think John is of God. So we'll just say we don't know, okay? So we don't know. And Christ said, so what does what's that reveal? It reveals an unwillingness to acknowledge truth. That's really what it reveals. And so as Christ say, well, that means you're not ready for the answer. And so I also will not tell you. But Christ loves them. He really wanted them to know. And in the following uh, narrative, we find Christ actually revealing to them in parables the answer to the question that they wanted to hear. And the question was, by what authority? In the next two parables, he gives the answer. The first one, Matthew 21, 33. Let's have a quick look at that. 21, we won't read the whole parable. You'll all be familiar with it, but I just want us to pick a point here to put it in the picture. 21, 33, same chapter. Jesus says here another parable, there was a certain householder which had planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged it and a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a faraway country. And then we know the rest of the story, he sends his servants. And last of all, it tells us in the parable, he sent who? The son as the legitimate heir. And they took him and killed him. What was Christ doing? In the parable, he was revealing to them an answer to their question. He says the son was the legitimate heir. His authority is based on his sonship. In the parable, there is a father and there is a son. In the next parable, in the next chapter, again, the same thing. Chapter 22, verse 2. Chapter 22 and verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Again, prominent characters. A father and... A son, what was Christ doing? He was trying to answer their question in the parables. Saying, really, my authority is that I am the son of God. That is the source of my authority. And finally, they were a little stubborn. At the end of that chapter, he asks them point blank if they got his point. And they did. Verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, now his turn to ask, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Is that a right or wrong answer? It's a right answer. Notice what Jesus says. 
He saith unto them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Master questioner Christ. The wisdom, you can't argue with the wisdom of God and win. You have no hope. But Christ is very gentle. What was Christ doing? He wasn't trying to corner them and show them he knew better than them. Christ was trying to lead them to understand and acknowledge who he really was. Now, you know, before I understood the truth about God, I never understood this passage properly. I thought, well, I thought they gave the right answer. What, what was Christ wanting them to say? You see, Christ was referring to his sonship to God. They acknowledged his divine sonship, as far as the Messiah was concerned anyway. They had a problem with him being the Messiah. But they did not acknowledge his sonship to God. The right answer to his question was the son of God. When he says, Who, what say you of Christ? Whose son is he? The right answer is, he's the son of God. And that would explain, well, that's the source of my authority. It's because I'm the son of God. That's why he says he's not just the son of David, because he obviously preceded David. He existed before David, because David calls him Lord. What did he exist before David as? They all went quiet. And the same problem is here today, brothers and sisters. There are people who will deny that prior to David's existence, prior to even Christ coming to earth, they will deny that he was the son of God. Isn't that sad? That's the, that's the source of his authority. It's the authority. And when we have the Son, we have that authority. Let's go to John 1.12. We'll just close quickly. Our time is almost up. John 1.12. We'll just see what this means to us today. I just want you to see that clearly. John chapter 1, verse 12. I think we all know this verse as well. John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, to them gave he what? Power. Some Bible translation says authority. To become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But you know what? We must receive him as he really is in order to receive that power. Because that power is none other than the authority that he has as the son of God. So we really deprive ourselves of the power when we say, I accept Christ, but he's not the son of God. Not really, anyway. Maybe it's just a title or a metaphor or just a symbol. Then all the authority you will have will be just a metaphor or a symbol. You will have to pretend. Brothers and sisters, we need power to overcome. That power is found in Christ. It's found in the fact that he is the son of God. That gives us a legitimate right to claim in his name power over the enemy. When we recognize that, the truth about the Son of God is an empowering truth. It's not just a theory to argue about. It is an empowering truth. Let's see what else Jesus says. Luke chapter 10. That's why the devil knows that. That's why he's after this truth. It's not just what's right and what's wrong. It practically means something. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. This is a very powerful verse. Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power 
of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You know who was standing listening when Christ said that? Lucifer was standing. You know what he said? Oh, no. You realize that? Here is Jesus saying to his disciples, those who follow him, those who believe on him as a son, he says, listen, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you authority, my very own, because you believe on me, over all the power of the enemy. Can you imagine why Satan is angry? Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Christ, according to his scriptures, he gives power over all the power of the enemy. That's power over sin. That's power over wrong habits. That's power over weakness. That's power to overcome. So if you believe the truth about the Son of God, you are expected to manifest the fruit of that. Isn't that right? Power over all the power of the enemy. You know, Satan trembles at the fact that Christ is the Son of God. Remember when Christ was on earth, and many times he'd meet cases of demon possession. The demons were terrified, and they expressed their terror very consistently. What were they terrified of? They always said, you are the... Why did they always say that? Because that is the authority that he has. They came face to face with authority. The authority is in the Son. And the devil knows that. That's why it terrified him. And the scriptures makes that very, very clear. Let's look at one example. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 36. It says, And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. How is the authority of the Son in your life and in my life? That's the question. Does the devil have authority over us when we profess to believe in the Son? You know, practically in your life, how, it is, how is it? Because sin is the key here. When the devil has authority over us, it's through sin. Are we slaves to sin or are we slaves to Christ, as our brother pointed out this morning? When it comes to truth about God, when it comes to accepting Christ as Savior, that comes with power. That comes with all the authority of the Son. And now that authority is not over your brother and sister in church, by the way. That's authority over all the power of the enemy. Because we're in a battle, and the battle is over authority. This is why I want us to understand this. When we understand that the truth about the Son of God is not just an idea, it's an empowering truth in our battle with Satan. It makes a big difference. That's why the scripture says, Whosoever uh, they that overcome the world, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Why is, why is the Son of God linked with victory? Because there is power, there is authority. So I don't just want you to think about the Son of God as a theory. I believe the Son and I have these texts and I show others that they're wrong. That's not the case. It's about power and authority. That's not authority that become bossy. It's power and authority over sin as manifested in the life. That's what Christ is longing to do. And that's why the devil wants to obscure this fact. And you know, it's said that many people who profess to believe in the Son of God don't really have that power and authority. We only have a theory. The power and authority, Jesus with authority cast out the devil. You know, there are people who come face to face with the devil and they take off. Brothers and sisters, we need desperately 
the power that we already have in Christ. If we have Christ, we have that power. We have that authority. We have been authorized over the enemy. Look at Mark chapter 13. Bad news for the kingdom of darkness. Mark chapter 13 and verse 34 says, For, as, for the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, and gave what? Authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Christ gave authority. Because he has made unto us wisdom. His authority is what we have. He didn't delegate new authority to us. If we have him, we have his authority. That's really the whole point. And that's hinging on the fact that he is the son. I can't emphasize that enough. I think you got the point. Is that right? Okay, that's the and why I'm emphasizing this is because this is the bad, this is the struggle. The devil really, really has obscured that. Even among those who profess to believe the truth. You see, the question really is this. Are you really free? What's the Bible say? If the son make you free, shall be free. That's good. We all know the verse. Do we all know the verse? Practically is the question. You see, the key to this verse is the son. It says, if the son. Why the son? Because the son has that legitimate authority. If you have the son, you have the power to be free from all the snares of the devil. So the question today to you, as the challenge I want to leave you with, to think about, are you really free? And if not, look to the sun afresh. And maybe today you've gained a little bit of an insight, or maybe a reminder as to the power over all the enemy that we have in the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Only he is able to cast out the devil. And you know, the devil is not a gentleman. He will not go. He needs to be cast out. And to do that, you have to have authority. You have to have power. And that power is the power of the Son. Remember how the devils trembled before the Son of God. If you are a believer, a true believer in the Son of God, the devils ought to tremble when they come into your presence. you recognize that? You know, the same thing happened with the apostles. What did, what did these, these people do? Try to copy Paul and try to do that uh, exorcism? They got beaten up. And what did the devils say? Paul, Jesus we know, and? Paul we know. Do the devils know your name? That's the question. Paul had the authority of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, that's my appeal, my challenge to you. We need to take a firmer hold on the Son of God. Let's pray. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.